is London Calling. Here is the last news bulletin for today. The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. Hello everybody and welcome to the Full Reptile Radio. Uh, I'm Dan Hardy and I'm joined by... This absolute legend here, <laughs> Ross Edgley, swam around the UK. I mean, when yeah, we start, that was a bad idea. That one wasn't it? How, well, no. I mean, you, I was messaging you on the south coast were. when my tongue was falling off. You were one of very few people actually. So when I started the whole swim, everyone was like, "That's never going to happen." You know, that's swimming suicide. You know, Kate Roth, uh, Corrie Beckham, giant whirlpool. And I know because you sailed the south coast, didn't you? you did a yeah. lot of sailing down there. So you messaged me and just went. I've sailed that dude, fair play. And yeah. so that meant so much that when when a lot of people on the South Coast, tongue falling apart, neck hanging off, that, that you were like, mate, you know, good luck. I was like, oh, thanks, mate. So yeah. first off, thank you. You're one of the very few who believed in me. All the way around, it was very different when I got around the top. <laughs> well, you built like a superhuman. So, I, you know, I'm thinking there's no way this guy's going to fail. And just for someone to kind of, for someone to switch their brain onto something like that, a task like that, Whoever whoever is willing to undertake something like that has has got a unique characteristic within them. Yeah. And I'm always invested in those people. Yeah, I mean we spoke about this last time though. I think it's so sort of task dependent because I would I would honestly do a second lap of Great Britain before I do what you do. I would not get in the cage. I would do I would tumble turn and do a second lap. <laughs> like, so that's one thing that I want to almost quiz you on today because I think a, a lot of people look at the Great British Swim and they say, oh, wow, you know, you, that's sort of a, the, a great example of physical and mental fortitude. And I said, yes, but within a very specific task, you know, swimming 12 hours a day for 157 days with this kind of sensory deprivation, you know, left alone with your own thoughts. Uh, as I said, you know, my tongue falling apart. So you get this thing called salt tongue mm. where I was just peeling off bits of my tongue, you know, so I had to cope with, with that. But with what you do, I mean, that's completely different. You know, that's almost an, an attack on the senses. Mine was sensory deprivation, whereas you, you know, all of a sudden you've got another human sitting opposite you and, you know, they're trying to choke you out, knock you out, you know, and you've got to make split second decisions <laughs> where it could go over very quick. Yeah. And, and, and for me, that, that's different. But it, it, and, and to go back to your point, that's what I find fascinating because humans are so adaptable. And I, I think if you look at the anthropology of his humans, it's like I would have been probably, you know, that strange guy who they sent to go and explore, you know, the horizon. <laughs> like, oh, send Ross, he'll swim it. Whereas you, you were probably the dude wielding the axe, you know. And I'm like, right, you wield the axe, I'll swim. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But at least, like, I know what I'm dealing with. Like, if I'm standing across from another human being, I know they're probably, you know, equally as trained and skilled or probably marginally better at something or other. I know what I'm dealing with. And it's like you said you know it's a sensory deprivation thing for me the the whole process of training camp was quite a lot like that it was quite a it was a solitary journey it was a, a very introspective journey for me you know like preparing for war so the difference for me was that that was just two individuals having a very similar experience and clashing at some point mm. whereas your experience is going against something that is completely overwhelming I mean like you said I sailed the south coast it was the roughest ocean that I experienced <laughs> on the whole boat race, Bad. genuinely. Mm. I mean, it was because it comes from every direction. I mean, we got caught on a lobster pot like off the coast at like two o'clock in the morning. So there's no distinction between the, the sea and the, la and the this sky. It's all black. 
and so your, your brain can't figure out where you are plus you're being hit from every direction with a really unusual current and a lot of chop mm. it was the the worst i've ever felt i never thought i'd experience sickness that would be so, de de oh, so debilitating yeah the idea of being in the water <laughs> right yeah yeah you're right it is it plays with your physiology in a way that i've never quite experienced before you're right and i think it was called the great british swim but in reality there were so many different variables and and, and this was one thing that i actually wanted to to quiz you on so i've been you know, very sort of uh, with my tour and everything like that, I've been talking about this idea of um, central governor theory. So Tim Noakes, um, who who basically believed that fatigue is an emotionally driven state that we use to pull the physiological handbrake. Um, so for those listening, you'll have experienced this. You know, if you've you know run a, a marathon or, or 5K, 10K, it doesn't matter. It's all relative. But if you're running a marathon and you are 16 miles in and you just think, I cannot go on. You know, my legs are on, they're on fire. My lungs are burning. Like I, I cannot go on. And there's that dialogue inside your head. And, and all that is, is just, you know, your body likes homeostasis. It likes that habitual level. So it says, mm. no, 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 we're comfortable. Why are you running a marathon? We could have been at home, you know? And so everything's going on your, in, inside your head to try and get you to pull that physiological handbrake, to slow down. And then all of a sudden, 25 miles in, you manage to get to 25 miles, you see your family and friends and they're all clapping and you think, oh, and then all of a sudden you sprint. It's like, what happened there? You know, and Tim Noakes talks about this idea of anticipatory regulation. So all it is, is it's these innate mechanisms, these self-built mechanisms inside of us that get you to, to not go to complete exhaustion. That's what it is. It's just kind of a safety mechanism. So now that's one thing that I was constantly doing for 12 hours a day. And as you said, sometimes at night, you, you couldn't see the hand in front of your face. And so I'm constantly saying, Ross, you know, stop. Ross, that sea ulcer in your shoulder is now getting an inch deep. It's going through to the tendons and the bone. Um, Ross, you know, I, your tongue's falling apart. Ross, you know, something just touched my face. Was that a jellyfish or seaweed? Uh, yeah, so this. Uh, <laughs> so for me, it was these constant conversations. However, one sort of criticism of, of the central governor theory is it's, it's task dependent. So you could be the toughest in the world and you could be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm able to override that central governor theory. But in MMA and what you did, that might not, it's not your decision if you carry on. And I suppose that's one thing that I wanted to quiz you on because you could be the toughest guy in the world, but what mechanisms are there where it's not up to you to continue? For instance, you might get knocked out, choked out. And at what point, I always come back and I know when we were speaking on Joe Rogan, I, I talk about that arm bar, that 99.9% .9 of people would have tapped, but you were able to overcome that central government. Everything inside of you must've been saying, Dan, your ligament's going to come, like it's, it's actually going to be detached from your body. What did you, what went through your head? Because that was my jellyfish <laughs> moment, but worse, far worse. Not worse to me. <laughs> no, Not worse to me. Worse. Break my arm. Don't wrap my face in the jellyfish. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so what did, what, what conversations do you have yourself? Spe specifically in that moment, but then I, I, I've seen, you know, I've been a fan for ages, so I know there's other fights where you talk about just something happened where you went, automatic so i suppose what I'm, I'm my question is when you look at that fight or flight reflex for me i was having that conversation in my own head because it was this slow pace and if i was going to give up it would have sort of happened where i could have made a conscious decision for you it's very immediate it's oh wow i'm in an arm but what, what do you have time to have that conversation in your head do you think is it automatic what actually happens um I think it's I think it's a combination of a few things. Um, something that I mean, maybe you did experience this at a point, but 
when you got in the water to start that, was there ever a point where you thought to yourself, right, I'm, I'm going to do this or die? Because that was my process preparing for a fight. Like I would go into fight week thinking, right, I need to settle my debts. I need to return the DVDs that I've borrowed to people. Do you know what I mean? Like I would, it would, it was a, it was a settling process. It was like drawing up a will. Right. You know what I mean? And like, it, I did the same thing for the boat race. Before I went on the boat race, I drew up a will because I, I knew that it could potentially, I mean, there were a couple of people that didn't make it on that race. And when it's a fight, I have to be in that mindset. I have to be ready to ready to give everything so the idea of my arm breaking is like well that's annoying but my left hook's my better punch anyway (laughs) (laughs) that was going through your head yeah that was yeah wow like i I can work through stuff you know (laughs) but you you work through a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that i would have been as soon as a jellyfish even brushed past my my face (laughs) i'd have been clawing for the boat right you know yeah like get me out of here well what i find so interesting about that is it's it's quite similar when i was with the royal marines and I did some training there on on sort of mental fortitude and their head psychologist um he said to me and I love this he said Ross have you kind of used negative reinforcement negative visualization I said what do you mean he said have you thought about the worst case scenario and at the time I was like no no I'm I'm, I'm, it's all about positive surely and I was looking at him going why would you tell me something could go wrong like why are you being mean you know (laughs) what's going on and he said "No, no 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 I mean this is kind of why the ninjas were so feared and revered and as soon as he said ninjas i was like i'm all ears what what are you talking about and he said with a ninja they've already made peace with the fact that the worst case scenario is they could die yeah you know that's the outcome what's the worst worst possible outcome if i go into a fight i could die and they're going i'm all right with that Mm -hmm. kind of like the ancient stoics marcus aurelius seneca they've all made peace with the fact hey we're all gonna die yeah and and with that sort of acceptance they were then sort of liberated to only think of the process. So whilst they were fighting someone, a ninja was just purely focused on swinging their sword, more efficient, their footwork. That's all they were thinking about, the process. There was no fear because they already made peace with that. And it was at that point when they said about the swim, they said, you know, what's what's the worst that could happen? And it's the same. It sounds a bit morbid and a bit dark to probably a lot of people listening as we're talking. But I was the same. I was, I was kind of thinking, hmm, you know, there is the boat there, you know, there, there are lifeguards, they know I'm in the, you know, the, the coast guards know I'm in the water, you know, worst case scenario, I mean, you know, I'll probably be, I might lose some fingers and toes to frostbite, how many, do you need all your fingers and toes, you know, which is, sounds so dark, but when you start looking at great adventures like Ranel Fiennes and people, yeah. you know, Ranel Fiennes, he, there's that story about when he, suffered frostbite but they were kind of like maybe you might keep your fingers maybe not they're kind of hanging in there there's a bit of circulation he he came out i can't remember if it was the antarctic or uh, antarctic I and mean, ran our finds the only person i believe to do the antarctic arctic and everest amazing living legend and didn't you do it in like a woolen sweater and that kind of thing like old yeah, school yeah, yeah no he is that yeah, breed yeah. yeah just a big woolen sweater oh, and a scarf this is it you know, local football <laughs> team scarf <laughs> exactly let's just it. do this <laughs> and 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 that sort of era i mean there's there's there was that uh, conversation where, where i think it was on top gear it might have been when he talked about it, he uh just decided that his fingers were were in so much pain from the frostbite. He just went into his shed and sawed them off. Or equally, he, the, the rest of his fingers, um, he went and had a really warm bath. And as he was having a warm bath, that kind of change in temperature meant they fell off. And he left his fingers on the side of the bath, just got out, got dry, went downstairs, had supper. And his wife 
walked upstairs and was like, why are there some fingers? Let your fingers the on the bath again. <laughs> I know. I told you about this. <laughs> Toilet seats up, fingers on the bath. <laughs> Crazy. So I think when you look at, at any athlete adventure, anyone who is, is really prepared to sort of, you know, push the boundaries of human mm. performance, I think you have to be a little bit tapped like that I think yeah. I, I, you know tapped you know maybe mm-hmm. you know but it's it's something that you have to be prepared to to sacrifice you yeah. know that and and it's that's why it's so interesting hearing that however there's also some fights where you talk about it being less conscious mm. and it's so, I mean what what happens there you know wh- wh- what happens was it we talked before about that was it Ludwig bang yeah. hit all of a sudden you just said you know balance took over mm-hmm. it was completely primitive yeah. what, what happened there yeah well that's that's why i always refer to full reptile and there are some fighters that i i see it in them immediately when the fight starts they're already present they're already there robbie lawler is a great example of that uh vandalay silver like if you saw robbie lawler when he came out against ben Askren the other week i thought the veins in his shoulders were gonna burst yeah. just from him flexing <laughs> he's so fired up but like i feel like that is like, and when you're in the water and you're having those conversations in your brain, that, that to me is th- three different parts of the brain having conversations with each other. Mm. Like the reptilian brain is going, this is stupid. We need to survive. We need to stay alive. You know, the, you know, the, the, the most evolved part of the brain is analyzing what you're doing and trying to figure out emotionally where you stand with it, morally where you stand with it. You know, it's the same with fighting. Like there's that conflict of, like Dwayne Ludwig was a friend of mine. So there's a moral conflict of, do I want to knock him out? And that is a conflict that you don't need in a fight. You want to be fully present and ready to do whatever you need to do to win. Um, but like in that fight, I was always I always felt like I was chasing that state of, of full reptile, that point where I can switch off the new mammalian and the old mammalian brain and just allow the, the reptilian brain to take over. Because when I see that in other fighters, it seems like such a strength. That's when it's, it's autopilot, it's, it's subconscious, it's allowing the body to do what it's supposed to do, what you've trained it to do. And... Whenever you see someone like, you know, like when Francis Ngannou fought uh, Derek Lewis um, and it was just a standoff, they didn't really throw anything. That's because Ngannou's having a conversation in his brain that's holding him back, making him hesitate. If he's just present in his reptilian brain, he'll fire, he'll throw those shots. But when there's the, the new mammalian brains going, oh, but what if we take a risk? But these people are, these people are watching, my family are there, how are they feeling about it? All of that conflict in your brain can can divert your thinking away from the fight and that's when people start getting hesitant when they make bad decisions when they rush in and get caught with big shots i was always chasing that state of full reptile and i never really got there not there was never a a point where i started a fight in that state i was close a few times but there was always a conflict but with the ludwig fight and you've heard people say it before i need to get hit with a good shot to get switched on (laughs) That is like the reptilian brain being activated. It's a, it's a switch going on. And in the first few seconds of the Ludwig fight, he hit me with that, that clean right hand that he's got. He fires it right from his chin. Bang, pops it right out. And he caught me just hard enough on the chin to make me feel like I was, I was in, in, a, in, a, in a fish tank. I was like floating around and I was like, you know what I mean? I, I was disorientated, but it was kind of, I was present, but I wasn't on, in, in control. And mm. then all of a sudden something had switched on in my brain. And before I'd realized it, I'd grabbed him, pushed him up against the fence and was holding him against the fence and being reactive to his movements. And in that moment, I realized that, 
I wasn't present in the fight in the sense of I was making decisions in the moment. I was present as a passenger and my body was doing what it needed to do. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm here. I've arrived in this space that I've been chasing. And then, and I was like, then, then there was a point of acceptance of just letting it be. And that's another conflict. Arguing with yourself, ah, no, I want control. I need to take back control instead of just being reactive. But I just, I let it be in that fight. And within, you know, two minutes, I'd knocked him out. And it, it was always a struggle to find that state. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's, I know, it's something yeah. that I've been working on constantly. But with other fighters, I see it in them and I'm like, he's gone full reptile. I can see it in his eyes. There's a change in the person's eyes. Mm. And one thing that always used to try and, one thing that I used to use to get me to that state or to get me close to that state was that acceptance of death. Uh, th there's a book, uh, the book of the samurai. Um, I'll lend it to you. It's, like, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, Yamamoto Tsunamoto. Right. And he talks about the process that the samurai would go through in the morning where they would, they would get up, they would meditate on death. You know, they would, they would dress themselves as if, as if it was their last day. They would carry a little bit of powdered rouge with them in their pocket. So if they got cut down, they'd be able to put some, some powdered rouge on to make them look healthy. Wow. As they died. Like there was this constant preparation for death every day. Wow. And I find that there's a strength in that. Mm. Because it I feel often that I was the only person getting into the octagon with that mindset. Mm. And I would often see in a fighter's eyes in the on the day before that they didn't have that. Mm. And that they were preoccupied with other things. They were thinking past me, they were thinking about their family or whatever it was. If I find I got to that point where I was ready to die, that was a huge strength going into the cage. Mm. And and you're so, to to so many people listening, that sounds so morbid. Mm. Like, Whoa! But but I think we've lost touch with that. You know that I think you're absolutely right. The samurai ninja. You look back through Japanese culture, even the ancient Stoics. Like I said, so, you know when you look at the work of Marcus Aurelius, they all you know death was kind of they thought about it. It was mm -hmm. a motivator. It was good if you could harness it. That's so interesting what you said there just about being able to try and actually switch that on. Because if you are able to tap into that, that's almost like neuro-linguistic programming where they start talking about actually programming your own brain. You know, so to actually find a way to switch that on and, and speaking to you now, it's only been four months since I got out the water and actually finished. So even now, I'm still trying to process it. And this was a conversation I always wanted to have just because tired after tired, you know, the, the, the tide basically changes every six hours. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, two o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon. I would get in and I'd swim for six hours. And so many people would always say, what did you think about? What was, what was that one thing? And I was like, oh God, it's not, it's not really as simple as that. You know, but I think um, favorite uh, sort of author of mine, Nassim Taleb, when he said, as humans facing limited knowledge, always resort to prescribed ideas and narratives. And he just kind of meant that we're always trying to find, with limited knowledge, certainly of the brain, the sort of next frontier of human performance, we're trying to look for like tips and tricks. Just like, tell me one thing that's going to help me. Mm -hmm. You know, and almost looking, it's like, yeah. okay, oh, Dan, how do I go full reptile? And you're like, oh God, okay. So, and then you start describing, you know, the actual intricacies of the human brain and people go, no, 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 I just want one tip. <laughs> you know, but you really yeah. need to explore that. Um, and I think even now I'm looking back and when people say, what got you in the water? It's like, sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I just got in and I, and I swum. And then other times it was just like, I, put, I remember Aberdeen first day of winter coming out as a big sort of shipyard. It's not really, you're not meant to get a catamaran in there, but the, uh, the harbour master was just a hero and said like, please come in shelter from the storm. Wow. 
I left my wetsuit out um, on, on deck and I never forget, it was like two, three o'clock in the morning, we pulled out and I had to scrape a thin layer of ice off my wetsuit before I could even put it on. Look, right? So, <laughs> so in that moment, I was, ex- I was exactly what you were describing there. I was like, I need to get in a right frame of mind now. And, you know, sometimes looking at, you know, caffeine usage to try and positively interact with neurotransmitters, chemical signals in the brain, um, you know, anything that you could do. But sometimes for all the sort of stimulants, tips and tricks, even as well, when I was, uh, it got to the point, not necessarily like superstitious, but I was like, I had a great swim two weeks ago. What did I have? And then it was like chocolate granola, you know, and you go, yeah, that was it. Chocolate granola is yep. key, you know, and then it didn't yeah. work that time. So I'm st- even now, looking back at those most powerful mental states um, during the swim, I'm deconstructing them all now to understand what it is I did. Because if you're able to turn that switch on, um, perhaps one of the best examples, and again, this this is very closely related to, to what you've demonstrated throughout your career, but um, Corey Vecken, so the giant whirlpool I was talking about, and it was, it was a strange place. So I'd been swimming for something like, 60 days by that point so you're 60 days so you warmed on. up by that point. yeah, yeah I, was, you were, you know. <laughs> I was limber yeah. <laughs> and we got to the Corriveckin and I remember um a lot of uh, local fishermen were saying you watch out for the Corriveckin I was like what do you mean watch out and they were like it's a giant whirlpool I was like yeah, yeah I've got that and they were like no no no, no. but and, and it got weird Dan people were like saying the hag goddess is governs the Corrie and I was like hag goddess and they were like the kelpie which are kind of like shapeshifters it's like the Corrie is like cemented in Scottish folklore mm. I remember at the time I was just like yeah 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 look it's gonna be fine so I ended up swimming across the way that the wind howls down the inner Hebrides you you start to realize this is kind of otherworldly you know you, you're sitting there fatigued tongue still falling off and I'm like whoa you know kind of like swimming going I hope the hag goddess is in a good mood. Yeah. You know, that's where I'm. So I'm swimming. Matt Captain turns to me and says, Ross, you need to swim. You need to swim hard for six hours. You need to get clear of the Corrie Beckin. Um, people have lost their lives. Ships have gone down. It's no joke. I was like, absolutely. Okay. And there's this real sense of, you know, everyone's kind of like a sober mm. mood on the back, collective sober mood. Anyway, so I'm swimming three hours in and stung by jellyfish. By this point, I'd been stung by so many. The giant jellyfish has gone on. I've been stung by so many. But this one in particular just felt a little bit different and it was it was just searing into my skin like someone had a hot poker on my face. And I, ca- I carried on swimming because I knew I had to swim clear of the Corrievecan. It was to my left. I can still feel it now. Jellyfish sting was to the left of my face. Corrievecan's there. And then it got to the point after another hour, this sting wouldn't go away and my eye is starting to close. The side of my mouth as well is kind of almost becoming paralyzed because the toxins are seeping into my skin. And then I stopped and I looked up at Matt and I said, Matt, I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I just, I need a little bit of a breather. I say, I've been stung, but the pain, it just won't go away. And he just looked at me and he said, yes, I know. Because it's still wrapped around your face. And the oh. tentacle had threaded into my goggles. Again, I won't repeat exactly what I said. Um, <laughs> I threw the, the tentacle away and um, then tried to put my goggles back onto my face. Uh, but my face had now changed shape because there were so many toxins seeping that my my, my basically my eye sockets were so big uh Matt's yelling at me and he's saying Corrivec and swim swim um so I put the goggles over my eyes um that, that weren't sealing because the water and I ended up just punching them into my face so I could swim <sighs> but it wasn't until I got back on and I, I ended up we swim clear of the Corrivec and and you know we made it through but that was the most brutal tide hands down most brutal tide but upon reflection 
it was almost that stress-induced analgesia that um, described, you know, analgesia being the suppression of pain, like a painkiller. Um, but it was almost like an injured animal, the way that if it, an animal is there like a feral dog and it's, it's you know, it's, its arm was caught in a trap or something, but it will fight to the absolute end because in terms of its biochemistry, something happens where they just don't care anymore. Mm. You know, and whether that is going full reptile like you described, whether it's something, whatever it was in that moment, I remember just thinking, nothing's ever going to be as bad as that. Mm. And, and, and even climbing onto the boat at the end, it, was, it showed how unforgiving the coastline was because Matt, the captain, again, I, I fall onto the, the boat, my face is now a different shape. And Matt just looked down at me and just went, yeah, well done, Ross. Tide changes in six hours. See you back on deck. You know, and it was like, wow, like, you yeah. know, the, the, you know. You probably needed that though, didn't you? Yeah. You know, I, I always remember um, there was a, a, a military movie I watched. I can't remember which one it was. It was a very old military movie. And, and uh, it might have been Zulu Dawn or something like that. But the, the basically, the, like the British officers walking around and like, I mean, they are literally facing death and he's telling people to straighten their uniforms and stuff. Just that kind of no-nonsense, matter-of-fact we're in the process now and it doesn't matter. What, one thing that I found a lot of strength in was my word. I said I was going to do it. Mm. Like, I, I won a fight against a guy called Chad Ryan in Nottingham and he was a UFC vet. And after I beat him, I got my UFC contract through the day after. But I'd already promised I was fighting the following weekend. And of it, there was a risk that I would lose my UFC contract if I lost that fight. There was, I mean, Joe Silvery called me and he was like, you're crazy, just pull out the fight but I'd given my word I was going to do it. And I always found that that was really, really good in training camp as well, just to remind myself that I said, I'm, I said, I'm doing this. I've never pulled out of a fight, not to my knowledge, not to my, my memory. Um, I remember showing up to a, to a fight once and uh, to a weigh-in once and they said, oh, we've, we're missing an opponent for somebody in an MMA fight tomorrow. I was doing a kickboxing match. And I was like, well, I'll do it no process in my mind of considering well that's so that's a kickboxing match and then an hour later an MMA fight but when as soon as I'd said it and I'd committed to it there was no backtrack in that and I always find that quite useful just to uh, and I think I think that might be unique to an individual I think mm. some people have got a stronger word than others and you know if they're going to do it they'll do it to the death if necessary yeah, you know? that's, and, and that was something that uh, when journalists would come onto the boat, I never forget, uh, day 74, it was Kyla Lockhouse and I just set the record for the world's longest stage swim. You know, so everyone was like, oh, it's a world record. But by World Open Water Swimming Association rules, if I didn't finish, that whole swim would have gone down as a DNF and did not finish. So, and also as well, for all of the Celebrate Week, sprayed champagne, cameras were there, everyone was like, oh, you're amazing. I was like, no. I said I was going to swim from Margate to Margate, all the way around Great Britain. Mm. So everyone was like, why aren't you celebrating? I was like, to, to your point, yeah, we're yeah. not done. Mm. We've got like a long way to go. <laughs> but I love what you said there because so many uh, journalists, they found it hard to compute when they said, why are you going on? As, as, and, and I think even by day 74, I was becoming more and more feral. So that like, you know, that sort of stress-induced allergy, I was like an injured dog. I was just there. I remember my feet, uh, my girlfriend would get on the boat and just be like, what is it? What are you? Your feet are blue. And I'll be like, yeah, but they're not black. So that's okay. <laughs> they're still alive. Yeah, right honestly. <laughs> so your perception sort of changes. Your perception of pain completely changes. Um, but I love what you said there just about sometimes 
you continue. When people go, why, why do you go on that? Why do you, cause you go, cause I said I would. And pe- I think people forget that. Maybe, you know, looking at sort of society today, there's a lot of people who maybe flake on people. But again, actually to go back to Japanese culture, I believe I'm pronouncing this right and I apologize if not, but the, the Tendai monks, so they're called the marathon monks. And there's this pilgrimage that they go on and it's essentially a thousand marathons in a thousand days. Yeah, but no, it gets worse. So people are like, what? They have to do it in basically um, straw sandals. So they'll go and do it in them. And then that's not even the worst bit. Traditionally, so now it's changed and it's a bit more symbolic, but traditionally, if you embarked on this particular um, pilgrimage, you were allowed to, and you were running a marathon a day for the first 100 days. If up those 100 days, you said, um, this isn't for me, you know, I, I want out, they would allow you and you could actually sort of walk away. On day 101, if you chose to continue, the only way that that would finish is you, with you doing all a thousand days and a thousand marathons, or you'd have to take your own life. This is an extreme example, I know, but when they were running, they had to carry a small rope and a small sword and they would have to take their own life. So there's a mount, a mountain, a mountain here, I think it is, I can't remember, it overlooks Kyoto. And it's, it's littered with the graves of those monks who didn't make it. I think in, I believe it was, again, I'm gonna have to check on this. It was like 1985, I believe. And I think only 45 people have ever done this. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's seven years of training as well. It's, it's, and that's not even as well. By the fifth year, so it takes seven years. By the fifth year, for all of the running, you also enter a, another phase where you walk into the temple and you must meditate, uh, not eat, not sleep, for nine days whilst basically meditating. This idea of complete self-discipline. And um, I was lucky enough not to do that particular one, but with the Yamabushi monks, of, of uh, we basically did an Okugaki, which is similar, you know, 30 kilometer treks throughout the day, ice cold waterfalls. Um, and I did that with the Yamabushi monks, which is part of the Shigendu faith. And it was, it's the same sort of, practice that you described there when you said when you went into camp there's this idea of self-discipline there's this idea of mind-body connection and you can argue it's spiritual um you can argue it dates back to like the ancient greeks where you know plato i know we were talking about this you know with plato celebrated wrestler but equally influenced western philosophy as it is today um but the, the ancient Greeks understood this mind-body connection. A gymnasium was a place where you would wrestle, you'd do calisthenics, but at the same time, you'd also, you know, talk about, you know, philosophy. It was a sort of mind, a place where the mind and body were, were sort of trained. And so I, I think this idea of one, saying, I'm going to finish this because I said it would, but two, these quite severe practices of self-discipline whether you want to do it for spiritual enlightenment, like the Shigendo and the Tendai monks, or you do it for self-improvement, it's kind of the same thing. Mm. And it was while swimming around, you know, Great Britain, there are a lot of people like, this is crazy, like, why are you doing it? I was like, one, because I said I would. You know, I, I'm just a man of yeah. what If I stop, then everyone will be like, you said you were going to swim around Great and you didn't. So yeah. for me, I was like, as long as I'm still breathing and still walking and I've got some of my fingers to go back to that sort of then I'm swimming Mm -hmm. but then also as well I I think when you look back through again looking at the anthropology of as humans what you trace is back there is this you know this powerful primitive state that void of 
religions and, and, and geographical locations, we've always had this something. Mm. So I think that's why it goes back to when you said, Ross, like what, you know, what did you get during the swim? I was like, whether you want to call it self-improvement or spirituality, there was something, there was a deeper meaning as to why I kept swimming. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same as you. It's like, well, why, why would you want to do, why would you want to cut weight? Why would you want to like, you know, you're a big, you're a big guy naturally. Why would you want to cut weight? Why would you want to go and fight? And you're just like, spirituality, self-improvement. I don't know. It was a deeper meaning. Yeah. Did you find that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, I had a, a conversation actually the other day with, uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, one of the owners, executives of cage warriors. And he, he loves the sport. It's been quite a new process getting into the sport since he joined cage warriors, but now he's involved. He loves it. He said, the one thing I don't like is the weight cutting. I just don't understand mm. it. And I said, well, consider it as this, cause I find, found it quite important as a part of my process. Back in back in ancient times, if you were going to battle, if you lived in ancient Greece and you were you were you know heading off to to war, you don't walk out of your house and the battlefield's right there. I mean, unfor- if it's very unfortunate if the battle comes to you, mm. but oftentimes you are armors on, you know, farming tools down, armors on, shield, sword, all of that kind of stuff, and you march, and you're you're carrying probably forty five kilos of stuff for a, a distance. You you're marching. I, I always felt like the process of weight cutting was that march for me. Mm-hmm. That that process of, uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's a process of shedding physically and, and psychologically, I think. It's, it's that, that's the final stage of acceptance of what's going to happen the day after. Mm-hmm. And I never used to, like one of the things that I, I always used to do, which a lot of fighters don't do now. I mean, the hot, hot baths is very popular now for weight cutting. I never did that. I like to do the hot sauna and then a cold shower afterwards because it felt like punishment. Mm. It felt like I was earning it. Like the suffering that I would go through in training camp and the reason I would force myself through that kind of suffering is because it it, it made me feel impenetrable when I got to the fight because I felt like I'd already experienced everything that I could possibly experience and anything from this point onwards is not going to compare. And I would just I would I would do everything to kind of arm myself psychologically and uh, and physically to to be ready for that moment. And when you talk about it being a um you know is it spiritual is it self improvement? I mean I don't think that I don't think that training in that way and I mean I don't think what you did in any way is a physical self improvement. I mean you'll mm-hmm. say your body deteriorated in a lot of ways. I felt very much the same when I was in training camp. The idea was to peak at a particular place, but it was a peak for a finale. It was a peak for a finale of well, I'm going to train, but I'm going to look after myself because when I'm in my 40s, I want to be able to play with my kids, was not a thought. It's I'm going to do everything I need to do to my body to prepare it for this. There was an acceptance that that was a finale, that was the end of something, whether it was the end of me or the end of that process that started the next. And that, for me, was very spiritual. And on much more of a a physiological uh, uh, note, Dimethyltryptamine comes up a lot. DMT, which is released by the pineal gland, which, you know, I mean, you spoke to Rogan. Joe Rogan's all, all about mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, I very much feel like there's, uh, there's, a, there's a, a connection, there's a reward in the brain in some way for putting ourselves through those kind of things. Like uh, there's a book, uh, Dr. Rick Strassman wrote The Spirit Molecule about DMT. Um, and he talks about the different points in people's lives where DMT is released, like a childbirth and those kind of things where it's a, it's a very traumatic experience in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it can be a very spiritual experience. And, uh, and the evidence that he gave is that the different processes of birth, whether it's you know a C-section, 
a nat uh, to a natural birth and that the everything in between determines how connected the mother is to the child in later life and that's that dimethyltryptamine release that's the uh, that's the reward for going through such a traumatic experience mm -hmm. and i feel like the process that you put yourself through that you choose to put yourself through mm -hmm. and all the things that you've done you, you're, you're chasing something. I mean, I said that to you last time we were speaking. Yeah. I either feel like you're chasing something or you're, or you're running away from something. Mm. And that's, that to me have always been the two driving factors for anybody that's fighting. Mm. You're either going for something or you're getting away from something. Mm. And the difference between those two, I think are quite, are quite different. Yeah. You know, there's one, one I feel is, is a fear-based program and one I feel, feel is a spiritual endeavor. Mm. I agree. And it's only, it was only when I left last I drove all the way home having spoke to you about that. And I was like, Oh, you know, cause it was, yeah. it was only, like I said, it was four months ago. So I'm still processing the swim. And it was that, that conversation, that exact conversation where I went away saying, yeah, is it more of a spiritual note? I needed to be so honest with myself because, and, and Rich Roll as well. I mean, he's, he's amazing. And he kind of sat me down when I was in uh, California and sort of like a big brother. He put his, I mean, he's a, a, an amazing endurance athlete and he sort of put his arm around me and he said sort of similar. He was like, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And I think now understanding, I love what you said there, how like with science and spirituality, they're so closely related. And it's almost like science, are you, it's self-improvement, whether you want to do it through science. So when I was swimming, even you know Wim Hof as well, like Wim, absolute legend. When he starts talking about, he for so long understood what was going on with his physiology. And he was there going, be the, be the uh, uh, what did he say? He's sort of, you know, be the alchemist of your own biology and your biochemistry so you know alter your biochemistry make your body more alkaline so uh, viruses bacteria cannot thrive and, and he would sort of say this and it wasn't he'd said that for 20 years and everyone was like oh don't listen to him or and then i believe it was the harvard study where he demonstrated you could control your immune system and everyone was like whoa he was right you know so was he spiritual when it wasn't proven by science or all of a sudden is he a pioneering uh, a pioneer of modern science when they proved it and it's yeah. so and i think it's definitely again we spoke about this last time with the evolution of of mma you know that when when you first look it was you know gracie family jiu-jitsu what was the determining factor of their success jiu-jitsu they were technically more proficient all of a sudden, things started to happen. More athletes started to come where you just got these absolute specimens, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, Brock Lesnar, we were talking about with Randy Couture and, and you just think, okay, well, he's just a bigger human, you know, yeah. and stuff, you know, and, and then there was that evolution. And what I find fascinating, what we were talking about last time is now I believe the evolution is actually going to come from the mind. Mm. I think that's, that's where you're going to seek more improvements as Things evolve. Everybody learned jujitsu. And then all of a sudden, Matt Hughes, with his wrestling background, learned a bit of jujitsu and was like, boom, done. And it was like, oh, that advantage I had, I now don't have it. The Gracie family were like, oh, God. Then Matt Hughes, so then wrestling. And then all of a sudden, and, and it keeps on evolving, I feel. But next, and we were talking, about, I didn't understand it. My very, I'm a huge fan of MMA, but that's why I, I kind of look at it through such like beginner's eyes. And that's why when we were talking last time and you actually broke down what Conor McGregor did to Alvarez. I said, how, you know, how, and you, the way that you described, I mean, I'm going to ask you yeah. to do it again because <laughs> I, I was like, that hadn't even occurred to me. Mm. I didn't even know that was a thing. What did you say? That invisible wall? What did yeah, you it, it created a, it, it created a perceived barrier for Eddie Alvarez. Um, basically, Eddie Alvarez felt like Conor McGregor's reach was at a particular distance 
And Conor McGregor reinforced that by throwing punches that missed at that range. So Eddie was then reinforced in his belief that he was safe behind that space. So then Conor threw a jab to disguise him moving forward and stepped through that space with the left hand. Which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> when you told me, my mind, I was like, what? Like that's, you know, so now I believe it's almost getting into, you know, like the art of war, Sun mm-hmm. Tzu. It's like, you know, the next MMA champion is probably going to start quoting chess and you know like i'm like that that blows my mind if i'm honest that it's you know the the smarter athletes now are the ones and it's just it's the next would you agree do you think mma what's the next frontier do you think now because of the athletes coming through and this is one thing i wanted to almost quiz you on as well which is now you get these kids growing up i think uh, forrest griffin I, i love this there was an interview with him age again he talked about he compared himself to the basketball players, like throwing it through their legs. You know, they they didn't understand, and they said we were so primitive. Um, now, kids growing up, they don't say, "Oh, I do karate, I do jujitsu." Mm-hmm. They just, "I do MMA." Mm-hmm. So now, if you were handed, uh, and this almost dates back to looking at the the Soviet Union era when they were, uh, I, I talk about this within my book, The World's Fittest Book, where if you had athletes growing up, you had these kids. And you didn't know if they were going to be, you know, I've got a young Dan Hardy. He's handed to me. I'm the coach. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. I don't know if he's going to be big, tall. I don't know if he's going to be a heavyweight, a flyweight. I have no idea. You know, he's a kid. So what you do is you'd build this kind of general physical preparedness where you just build motor patterns. They'd run, climb, uh, squat, just build that, that, that neuromuscular efficiency where mm-hmm. they'd understand proprioception proprioception and agility um when you showed any form of kind of oh okay he's going to be quite strong always he's going to become tall then you could start to hone those skills um but i suppose my question is now if you were handed a blank canvas a genetic specimen obviously it's going to vary with different weight categories what would you do how would you describe because i know you said this before when you said right for beginners I believe you said like wrestling, a decent like double leg, yep. striking. But but how would you evolve? How would you create <laughs> with 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 your level of fight IQ, like just some unbelievable specimen? Well, a lot of it would be to do with play, and I think that's why McGregor was so good because there's a there's an understanding in that comes with play because you're open because you're you, you're you're open to perceive because you're enjoying yourself there's no fear so there's no holding back there's no conversation in the brain you're just present when you're playing which is why kids learn so quickly um just going back to the mcgregor thing i'm i'm often not sure when i'm breaking these things down whether they are aware of what they're doing because their fight iq is there or mm. whether they're there because they're just present and so it's conscious or subconscious yeah. you're not sure which one right I, I think, think that's a part of how the training is I think the re- I think when McGregor was doing that I'm not sure whether he knew he was creating that invisible wall or whether he just happened to stumble upon that when he was sparring play sparring with Artem Lobov one day and then he thought he'd try and exploit it and mm. you know it, it and that is really where I think that the training comes from you've got to make it un- enjoyable like a lot of my beginning in, in martial arts was taekwondo and I didn't like where I, tra- I was training because my coach was, a, my teacher was a bully and I had that same teacher for several years all from when I was six to when I was probably 10 or 11 and it was, I never enjoyed it. It was a, always a, a hardship going to those training sessions. So I didn't learn very fast. Whereas when I started training with a different coach and it was fun and we were like throwing pads at each other and kicking them out the air and I'm like, I've got that adrenaline rush and I'm having positive associations with those kind of things. I'm, I'm building new neuromuscular pathways all the time because mm. I'm open to it. Mm. 
So a lot of the training that I would do with kids now, and we've just opened the gym, we're going to head there later. We've got kids' classes, and the classes are going to be enjoyable, playful classes where they start learning the... Uh, you know the necessary motor skills to do the correct techniques and to throw the correct punches and to shoot a correct double leg and to pass guard and you know see when someone's back's exposed and know they've got to get their hooks in but do it in a in a, a playful way where it's not it doesn't feel like a punishment yeah. and with someone like that I would just th- my coach always used to say it with me because I've always been I've always uh, pr- been uh, proud of myself for being a good student so when I went to my boxing coach, Jimmy Gifford, he said, I like training with you just because I throw a load of toys on the floor and I see what you pick up. Mm. And he would just challenge me with all kinds of stuff. And some things I would grab straight away, other things I would just discard. And as a, as a, with a child, I would do the same thing. I would just throw a bunch of stuff at them and see what they like, see what they work with. And then we'd structure their game around that. Mm. When we were talking last time you were here, I was talking about you and Tim. Tim Sheaf was here yeah, as well. Shout yeah. out to Tim. Um, and I was saying, if I got both of you for six months and put you through a, a you know, a, a, an extended training camp to prepare you both to compete, it would be very linear. I would, mm. I would, I would tell you what to do because I know what's highest percentage and most effective. Mm. And with someone that I was growing from a, a young student, I would always add the higher percentage stuff to their game, but I would not stifle that creativity of them throwing a spinning elbow if they want or mm. a flying knee or whatever, because we see that stuff works as well. Mm. And usually the X factor in the fight is the person that is willing to take those risks, like the Johnny Walkers, the yeah. you know the uh, the Magomed Sharapovs of the world, the Yaya Rodriguez. Obviously, John Jones is a great example. I like that they're they're the X factors for me, and they're the things that are going to change combat going forward. Because as you said. Kids that are getting into the sport now are not starting with Taekwondo. Yeah. They're not doing 10 years of walking up and down a, a, a you know, a, a town, a village hall, a town hall in, in uh, you know, in, in Nottingham doing all this low block punch, high block punch, you know, neuromuscular pathways that I didn't really need to develop mm. because they're not really effective techniques in a real fight. Mm. So if I took all of that energy and effort that I put into, I mean, they built me physically, and I loved that process of going through the traditional martial arts because I do feel like physically it did build me for a lot of the stuff that I went on to do. But if I could have made that more sport specific from a younger age, like the kids today, you take a, a six-year-old today and you put them on an MMA mat and you teach them mixed martial arts, everything that we know works mm. over the past 25 years of filtration through the UFC, then we go, right. That's what you need. That's the skill set you need. There's none of that junk, none of that jumping, spinning kicks, you know, from Jet Li movies because that stuff's not going to work in real combat. Mm. That's when you start getting the kids that are very, very fast, very, very quick at decision making, cognitively exactly. fast. Exactly. Yeah. And the seams between their game is 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 invisible because it is one game. Mm. Like, and that for me was what Bruce Lee always talks about with Jeet Kune Do. Like Jeet Kune Do was not meant to be a style. Like what's taught now as Jeet Kune Do is Bruce Lee's martial art. That's what worked for him. But he always talked about, you know, absorbing what is useful and rejecting what is useless. Being open to everything. So and it was a philosophy, not a set. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that for me is where the, I, I stood, I've studied Jeet Kune Do because I wanted to know what worked for Bruce Lee, but that's not what works for me, you know? And I found working with different coaches, I would pick up something that worked for that coach and something that didn't. And I would take what worked and discard what didn't. And... 
I feel like that has been my process, but that has been MMA's process as well. Like we know a double leg works if it's done correctly. We know that knees from a tie clinch is done correctly are, are very effective. There are some things that you can bank on. A rolling heel hook is so low percentage that you can't really bank on that. It's not saying it won't work at some point, but it's the, the, there's, there's a, the filtration system, you know what I mean? So now these kids that are stepping onto the mats, they're, going, they're, they're being presented with what's already been filtered. Which, is, which means in 10 years' time, martial arts, mixed martial arts competition is going to look so much different. It's going to be faster. Mm-hmm. It's, there's going to be games within games being played, footwork, octagon control is going to be better. I'll be honest, <laughs> MMA right now is quite primitive still. Wow. I do genuinely be, believe it is. I think we see flashes of brilliance, but I think generally it's still quite primitive. Wow. Because, of, because of what I can see developing over the next few years and where we're going seeing the kids that are getting on the mat and knowing what they're capable of. You know, every now and then we'll see a flash of brilliance in, in one way or another. Someone that will look like Israel Adesanya is a good example. Like, oh my goodness, Israel Adesanya looks incredible. Well, that's because he think, he's thinking about what he's doing. And he's finding a lot of people that are doing what they've been told to do. Mm. So it's almost, it's almost like with all of those drilled motor patterns of traditional martial arts, it's easier to read, whether it's, you know, BJJ, Taekwondo, boxing. You're looking going, I know that stance. I've seen that stance. Yep. I've drilled that stance. It's almost like they're games of chess. But what you're describing now is like, while someone's playing chess, you're playing snakes and ladders. It's just like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm on a different board yeah. right now. So that's, you feel that that's what's coming. That's the new, wow. That, yeah, for sure. I yeah. mean, you're, like, you're looking at... Ten like, years? I would say 10 years. I would say 10 years is reasonable. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching this process happen, but there is at some point going to be a jump. There's going to be a jump where all of a sudden we get this whole flood of guys that went from traditional martial arts where that kind of came to an end and where MMA gyms took over. Wow. Like you don't see many traditional martial arts gyms opening now. They, they, they kind of, they branch off from one, one another. So you'll mm-hmm. have one guy that will start a, a martial arts school and then he'll grow old and one of his students will take over and the bloodline will continue. MMA just scatters. It's this guy goes to this place and opens a gym. This guy goes to this place and opens a gym and he's got his thoughts and he's got his thoughts. And do you know what I mean? And it's, yeah. it's a constant breeding ground as well for new stuff. Like you go to 10th Planet, Eddie Bravo. I used to love training there because every day there was something I'd never seen before. I'd never seen before. And it could be a 15 year old kid doing it. And he's on a completely different operating system because he didn't grow up playing snakes and ladders. He grew up playing Xbox. Wow. Okay, you know what I mean? Yeah, that processing yeah. is much faster. Wow. So that's another thing we have to take into account. I think humans as a species are still evolving in that way. And I think that I, I think that the, the ability for the brain to continue to evolve is going to be shown within mixed martial arts because it is such an extreme filtration system. Mm. I think that's another good point as well there. Even looking at now the money in MMA... So all of a sudden, it's going to attract a completely different talent pool. Mm. You know, they're, they're all of a sudden, I mean, you know, way back in the day, I, bet you, I remember I remember when I very first said it, because I'm obviously from Grantham. So I saw you on, I think it was like a BBC Nottingham, you know, and it was just like, oh, yeah. a local guy. And, you had your <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, cool, because I was into it. So I was like, oh, wow. You know, but everyone, it was just like, oh, look, isn't he, isn't he really fast? You know, <laughs> so, and like, people were still learning about it. Isn't it? Oh, God, he's really mean. Look at his mohawk. Yeah. Whereas like, and it was almost, oh, mm-hmm. look, oh, good for you yeah. now people understand and this is what always blows my mind that, that it's just and I don't know whether you were aware of it or not but I, I 
I love just looking at humans and performing like an autopsy, you know, and when, when you, you know, were at the very top of your game, it's so weird to think of the billions of people in the world, you were like in, in hand to hand combat, you mm. were in like the top 0.0001%. Do, do you know, that's weird. And for me, it's this, like with the Mori Firth when I was swimming, I was like, wow, no one's ever swum here before. Mm. So I felt quite unique. I was quite conscious of that. And I sort of meditated on that for a little bit. But what is really weird is like I said, at a moment in time, when you start talking about legacy stuff and when you're like old and you've got your grandkids, you know, you'll be like, you know, the billions of humans on the earth. <laughs> there was a time when hand to hand combat, I'd have had most of them. <laughs> you know I mean? Did that? Did that ever compute? Was that part of the appeal? Was it primitive? Why? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, why yeah. did you just? Were you aware of that? Was that a motivating factor, or were you just like, I don't know why I like fighting? It just because for me it was a swimming. I was like, I don't know why I like swimming. I like swimming, you yeah. know. And I'm like at the sea. But for you, was that the same? Especially during a time when no one was really doing it. Yeah. I think it was. I think it was a. It was a combination of a few things, and it was a process of going through several different things. I think the beginning, the reason I wanted to do it in the first place to start martial arts was because of fear, because I was being bullied. So, like, it came from fear-based programming. It was I need to make myself stronger because I need to protect myself, and that was the process. Then I started to think to myself, well, if I continue to make myself better, then I can protect other people as well, and I, I became quite a you know like. I would always have my friends' backs. You know, when I was a teenager, I was always getting into fights because I was always sticking up for other people. Mm. Because I was like, I've prepared myself for this and I can stand up for what's right. In that moment, there was no idea of being paid to be a martial artist other mm. than being a teacher. So I was doing martial arts purely as a, as a, as a self-defense and as a fear-based mechanism. And then there was a point where I realized, oh, hang on a minute, I, I, I'm quite good at this. And then I started traveling around other gyms and challenging like I would go into gyms and I would, you know, I would, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be obnoxious about <laughs> no, it, no, but no, I'd be I there to compete. I'd of be course. like, show me what you've got. And I want to see if it's good enough. And that was a great Again, experience not for me. No, 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 no. Just primitive. You just wanted to go in there. Just, just almost like, you know, just skills like you would with a game of chess. Mm -hmm. You'd go in and say, who's your best chess player? Boom, beat you. Thank yeah. you. You'd learn self-improvement. Yeah, yeah. Spiritual self-improvement. I don't know. For but sure. So it was just something innate. Yeah, and it, wow. and it was, and that was that was a process for me. I was I was then in a process of gathering, because I realised that the place I was learning had. I mean, I, I was very fortunate to have a very open-minded martial arts coach. It it was a taekwondo school, but his name was Mick Rowley, and I always call it mixed martial arts because it was his martial arts. We did boxing, we grappled wow. before MMA was a thing. So I was, I was very fortunate to be in a place where I already learned a lot of skills that were useful to me later in life. And that also prepared me to go around to the judo schools and the karate schools and the Thai boxing schools and go, ah, let me see how my skills fare against them. And sometimes I would have to draw upon things that I'd not used in Taekwondo competitions, which I liked, because mm. it made me feel like I had a more, a more complete skill set. So, and then, you know, I mean, there were some times where I would go to a Thai boxing class and I would get beaten up. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll stay here for a while. And I would get caught in a web and I'd stay there sometimes for a month, sometimes for, you know, six years. And I, I mean, I was at my Thai boxing school for years and I loved it. But that was because there were certain things that I couldn't deal with. Leg kicks were a real problem for me because the way I stood from Taekwondo. So that was an adaptation. And I, I loved that process. And then there was a, then there was a, then it started to change over to, well, maybe I could be good at this better than other people. Then there was a, I realized I was getting respect from other people because I could fight because they knew I was winning competitions and stuff. So then my personal um, 
my perspective of myself started to change. That was very empowering, which is really what I needed from being a relatively quiet, awkward kid, you know. Um, and then, then when I started to climb into the into you know into the rankings in the UK, I was then obsessive about being the best in the UK, then the best in Europe, and I wanted to do that quickly because I re I felt like I was already there. I just wanted to prove it, and then I wanted to get to the UFC. And then there was a point when I was in the UFC, and I'm like, you know what? I could travel to a gym in, in anywhere in the world, and there'd be a guy on the mat that's never had a professional fight that can beat me on this day. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there was a level of humility that came with that and it was the Condit fight. Yeah. I felt like on any day, at any point, in any range of the fight, I had his number. And there was an arrogance that came with that that was that absolutely left me open. Caught me with a clean left hook. And I, I often say, you know, the person that got up off the canvas was a different person. Because mm -hmm. that guy was like, oh, you know what? Anybody can beat me in any particular moment. And then it was all—it was almost a state of, of acceptance of, um, I can only give as good as I've got yeah. on that particular day. I love that though. So that again comes back to, again, looking at the marathon monks that we spoke about before. It's amazing how you can draw such a parallel. This is again, a slight tangent, but this podcast has been nothing but tangents yeah. so far. <laughs> they always um, are in this room. We've got, we've, got, <laughs> we've got Owen and the Raptors sitting here and uh, yeah. <laughs> They're always random. <laughs> but, but when you look at um, uh, Kipchoge, so Kipchoge at the moment threatening to run the first sub two-hour marathon, which I think is amazing. It's like Roger Bannister. People said, you cannot run under a four-minute mile. Simply cannot be done. You know, humans cannot do it. But, and a medical student himself uh, ran the first sub four-minute mile. I believe Kipchoge's at that same point right now threatening to run under a two-hour marathon. I believe it was the breaking two, the documentary he ran two hours, 35 seconds. Oh. Yeah, I know. So it's like run one second quicker. If you, you know, just not stop for that hot oh. dog, you'd have been, <laughs> right? you know. <laughs> but what's crazy about Kipchoge is when you actually look at, I mean, he is a, you know, multimillionaire. He's a hero in Kenya. Mm. Um, his life is almost that of a marathon monk. He, he wakes up, he, he chops the vegetables for the team as the training. He cleans the team toilets. So you're a millionaire, you're a multimillionaire, but he, he understands that there's that, I love what you said about that humility. You ended up going back to that, mm. that it's, it's about the process. It's not about, you know, the medals, the accolades, that it's just for some inexplicable reason, going back to even Ranel Fiennes, like, why would you chop your fingers off? And it's just that yeah. inexplicable reason that I believe the Shigendu monks, you know, going on that Okugaki, and it, it seems to bond all uh, athletes, even Emil Zatopek. So the greatest, uh, widely considered to be the greatest endurance run of the 20th century. Um, three golds, Helsinki Olympics, um, ran the 5,000, the 10,000, never ran a marathon before in his life, but turned to his coach and was just like, with this playful kind of not doing it for, actually, he didn't say, oh, I want to, I want to win another. He just kind of was like, he goes, I, I, he goes, I think I uh, run marathon now. And his coach was like, you've never run a marathon. You've got two gold medals. Chill out. Yeah, yeah. And he was just like, no, no, no. He goes, I'll run one. And they were like, oh, my God. He goes, okay, fine. What are you going to do? And then Emil Zatabek, who pioneered high-intensity interval training as we know it today. Uh, Emil Zatabek, he used to run 100, uh, sorry, yeah, 100, 400-meter sprints. That was some of his training. Horrend yeah, horrendous. His wife, who was a celebrated javelin thrower as well, um, for date night, she would go and just launch javelins and he'd go run and get them like a dog, basically, and bring them back like this thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he did it for the love. So if you're you're racing against a guy like Emil Zatopek, who's doing it for the love, not mm. like the, you're like, wow, that is powerful. But Emil Zatopek, again, so they said, well, what are you going to do in the marathon? And he said, oh, he goes, it's very simple. He goes, I'm going to, who, who's going to win? 
the marathon and they say oh that dude over there that british guy he's widely considered to win the marathon he goes okay you go i will i will run on his shoulder and um when we get into the uh, stadium at the uh, boop, i will i will overtake him and i'll win <laughs> and his coach is just like no emil it's a marathon it's different and he goes no it's fine and there's this documentary it's amazing where the uh, the british guy and i forget his name now but he's reflecting on the helsinki olympics and emil zatbeck has of course since since died but his legend sort of lives on and and this this British guy turns and he's recounting the story of of that particular marathon, and he said he's running and he's and he's breathing hard. He's really well spoken. This British guy goes, "I'm running," and he said, uh, I, "I I look over my shoulder and uh, I see a meal just pops onto my shoulder, uh. and uh, I thought you have the cheek, <laughs> you have some cheek. You haven't even run a marathon." And he said, "A meal." He said he turns up and he goes, "He ran alongside me." And uh, he said, uh, he goes, uh, hello. He goes, I am Emil. <laughs> and he's running and he goes, you're right. <laughs> and he goes, I, um, I've never run marathon before. So I don't know if this is oh, quick. Oh, just rubbing or, it in. <laughs> he goes, I don't know if this is quick or are they going to catch us? Or, and uh, this British guy again goes, and I thought to myself, you, you bugger. <laughs> you know, he goes, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stitch you up. And he turned to him and he said, oh, no. He goes, this is far too slow. He said, they're going to catch us. This pace is all wrong. And he said, and with that, Emil turned to him and went, okay, I understand. I will see you at finish line. <laughs> and he ran, won, finished. But it was that sort of like sheer enjoyment, that mm. childlike enjoyment where he was just doing it for the love that I think bonds a lot of great athletes. Yeah. Even Usain Bolt as well. When you look at Usain Bolt, he's mucking around. Is he mucking around or is it play? Does it go back to what you're saying? Like, what is it? Especially with something like sprinting. It was the World Championships where Gatlin was threatening to, to. I mean, Gatlin since beat him, but it was one World Championships where you see Gatlin just ever so slightly gets tight, tries too hard, overstrides, heel strike, Usain Bolt overtakes and wins. It was just you the the determining factor in that, and I never forget. Actually, I watched that with Limford Christie, and again, Limford just had the foresight to say the winner of this will be the person who runs their own race. I said, what do you mean? Like, I said, well, you know, what about Pastor? And he just looked at me mm. almost like wow. this sprint Yoda, you know, and then Lifford yes. was just like, no, no, no. It would be the one who runs his own race. And Usain Bolt's there and he's playing around. He doesn't care what's going on to the lane to his left or right. And he even got a bit of a bad start. Gatlin was out like a shot. Mm. But all of a sudden, when you saw, you know, Gatlin saw Bolt's huge legs on his shoulders and he just gritted his teeth and he tried too hard. And, you know, whether it was, like I said, that kind of that playful nature, whether he didn't go full reptile, whatever it is. But that was mm. that was the determining factor. And I think you see it across so many sports, you know, so I think what you're practicing and preaching, I think, goes across so many. And certainly with, you know, sort of maybe future adventures. I know we were chatting off there, so I can't say too much now, but, you know, with future adventures of mine, it will be amazing to try and chat to you yeah. to tap into that. Um, because if I do find myself you know, getting teabagged by a jellyfish again. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be able to be like, oh yeah, what did Dan say? You know, yeah. that's that's the hope. I have anyway. no experience in that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I have no experience in that. You know? But that interesting, what you said about Linford Christie saying, you know, the, the winner will be the guy that runs his own race. Oftentimes you'll hear commentators say, you know, analysts will say, oh, it'll be the fighter that, win that fights his own fight. Mm. And that is, you know, takes the lead, doesn't consider what his, other oppo what his opponent's trying to achieve. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, especially That's when you look at, I, I suppose, going back to what you said about when, you know, some of the athletes just impose their will, like the Diaz brothers. Mm. And I think it's sometimes perhaps easier for them to impose their game plan because they're saying we've got great chins, great ground game, 
and I have cardio for days. I do triathlons for fun, you know. So when they're looking across, it's like they're sort of sitting there going, "It's, it's going to be a long night for you," <laughs> you know. And then, yeah. and uh, Bisping as well, I suppose. I mean, that was one thing that Rogan was saying that, that so many people they don't understand Bisping's cardio, his conditioning. No. It's immense. And so with some guys like that, it's it's would you say easier if you're say in Garnu when you're going I've got an unbelievable you know right hand oh wow it's missed yeah. against Stipe oh god it's missed. oh okay oh my god okay now you're on top of me okay now I'm fatigued now my body is riddled with lactic acid so that one weapon I have has now been taken away mm. but if you have someone like you know the Diaz brothers they're, they're just kind of like oh, my weapon is more durable it's yeah. easy to impose would you say yeah absolutely I, and I think it's I think, well, let's go back to the idea of a kid coming into the gym that is going to be an MMA fighter in, you know, one day and they're going through the process. If I got a very young Nganu to come into the gym, if if I could, and obviously this is not possible, if I could take away his power, his big weapon, and give it to him when he's understood how to fight, mm. that would be ideal. Because there's a, when you have power like that, it's a shortcut to a lot of things. Like... You know, there are a lot of fighters that have that have got um a, you know a one big punch and their whole game revolves around that one thing. Paul Daly is a good example. You know, he was a, a teammate of mine for a long time. I love Paul to death. He's got a ridiculous left hook. If he lands it, it doesn't matter who you are. You're gonna fall over. You're gonna go to sleep. And his whole game built around that. Now, if he didn't have that that one big powerful weapon, his whole game would have developed. But unfortunately, his whole game stayed in the shadow of that one, that one attribute that he had. Mm. And I always felt like the reason, I mean, it's the same with, you know, Dean Amasinga is immensely strong. So his whole game revolved around being strong. Sometimes it backfired. Sometimes he slammed his opponent on the canvas so many times that he would gas himself out. Mm. You know, and that is, that is where the, the, you know, the physicality of someone can also be a detriment to them. And like Paulie Malignaggi is a great uh, boxing analyst. The reason he's a great boxing analyst is because he never knocked anybody out. He didn't have any of those athletic attributes that allowed him those shortcuts in any way. So he had to do all the work mentally. And I think that that's why I didn't necessarily succeed as a fighter as far as a UFC champion goes. But as an analyst, I you can didn't succeed. do bad, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing is, you, 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 talk, you talk about that top percent and, right, and where okay. I was at. Yeah, wow. For me... I'm not seeing anybody below me. I'm just seeing those few guys above me. Right. And that's my focus. And that feels like insurmountable to me when it's GSP, John Fitch, Thiago Alves, Carlos Condit. You know what I mean? Like, that feels massive. I'm not seeing the ground I've already covered because I'm still, I'm, I'm chasing something. Wow. Mm. You know? mm. that, so like, I, but I, the reason I feel like I've, I'm succeeding better as an analyst than I was a fighter is because I had to do everything the hard way. I had to figure it out same way with Paul Malignaggi, because he didn't have that knockout power, because he wasn't a great athlete, particularly fast in any way, or you know anything like that. He had to use technical uh, ability and smarts. He had to use his IQ, and if you can if you can cultivate that IQ in a young person before you, they they discover their natural physical attributes, they almost become bolt-ons to a very very good foundation of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And if you've got that a good foundation of knowledge and you can bolt on those physical attributes, you can become very, very dangerous, mm. you know? So that is going back almost to that, that Soviet 
sort of idea of general physical preparedness because it's like okay okay you are very strong you know you do have amazing but but no 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 let's let's learn to run jump light plyometrics repetition you know so that mm-hmm. is and i think yeah to to come back to that because i think so many traditionally there was so many i mean and gone is a great example because you know what's he been doing MMA like four years yeah something like that and he just walked yeah just, <laughs> just walked. cleaning everyone's clock oh, yeah <laughs> so there was he i mean and so it's all very well talking about you know in you know the opt cremated creating the optimal athlete but it's like sometimes you don't have that luxury mm-hmm. he when he talks about you know, he was he was basically homeless he walked into a gym you know so yeah it, there's kind of like optimal and there's real life you yeah know? but i think you're right now it would be incredible with with certainly what the UFC are doing and building more gyms that you're going to get this talent pool and maybe traditionally somebody who kind of was like, okay, I'm going into sport. I mean, mine was a great example. I was playing water polo and then I, it got to a point where I was like, you know, I'm not going to make a career out of this as such, you know. And so my sort of career led me down a different sort of path. But I think there's a lot of athletes now who may be going, oh, it's actually quite lucrative. So, mm. you, you know, it's pulling in that talent. So I love what you said there about the evolution of the training and the, the strategy. But I think the gene pool as well, that when you start getting Nganus, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you get like LeBron James. Imagine if LeBron ended up going into, you know, yeah. MMA, you would have been like, what is that? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you, you look at John Jones and you think to yourself, well, he could have gone into, into many other sports and yeah. been very successful. GSP would have probably been a great gymnast or a great swimmer or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the, the, there are certain athletes that are starting to find their way into mixed martial arts and some some of them by accident. Mm. And I do think the increase in money will will certainly make a difference. Um, but then, I mean, we, to go back to what we were talking about a little earlier, how we were talking about Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, when that first emerged into, into mixed martial arts, it, it was... I mean, it was like witchcraft. People didn't know what was going on. You know, Hoist mm-hmm. Gracie seemed to have some kind of secret knowledge that nobody else had, had, had you know, had the privilege to, to witness. But then once, you, once you've got that and then you bring wrestling into it, wrestling comes with a physicality as well that's adopted in the process of learning wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and we've talked about Plato. Plato was his wrestling name. It meant broad. He had mm-hmm. broad shoulders. Um, when, when they brought wrestling in, you had... You had the, the the technical ability to control someone and the physicality to do it, which didn't always come from jujitsu. Jujitsu is much more of just a technical thing. So mm-hmm. now you're getting this combination of the athletes, which is going to be brought in by the money. Mm-hmm. Um, that are, you know, the, the athletes that don't find their way into many other sports that are more lucrative. That you know they gravitate towards MMA, and the guys that have the technical ability. That's when you you know that's why things are going to continue to increase and improve because there are still guys in the sport that are great martial artists that don't have great athletic attributes and there are great athletes in the sport that are terrible martial artists you know what i mean so yeah like this still this that's why the sport's still fragmented Mm. and that's why i feel that it is still very primitive Mm. it's still it's still compartmentalized almost like it was in early UFC when this guy's got Kung Fu and mm. this guy's got karate and we've got a sumo wrestler over here that's huge and he's going to fight this ninja who's also a police <laughs> officer from New York and you know you've got all these weird like everybody's in their own compartment and there's no there's no bleeding into one another yeah. now there has been some bleeding but this the lines are still not not been entirely blurred yeah. you've still got great athletes that are still you know and Garnu he's not a great martial artist no you know? but just a freak like athlete exactly yeah. mm. and you look at him against someone like uh, Alistair Overeem who has a wealth of knowledge and experience mm. and he's a great martial artist mm. it doesn't well. always matter 
No. It's when you've got two Nganus that have got the experience of Alistair Overeem. Mm. That's the future of mixed martial arts. Wow. I think as well, one of the biggest things I'll take away from this, like MMA aside, is just that mindset that seems to bond everybody. Mm. You know, are, are you going to cut off your fingers to reach that goal? And just, just it's sort of in summary... I love what you just said just then where there, there seems to be that that you're so hard on yourself still you know when you sort of said like oh you know i didn't quite it was like no 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 don't. You, you had enough, <laughs> but, but do you feel that is there still that like do you know what i mean that like burning desire inside that you just there is yeah yeah i mean i'm, I'm aware that there's you know there's a lot of ego involved in that you know there, there is a like i see these guys where they're at now and the you know the respect they're getting the limelight they're getting and i remember connecting with that part of myself like the guy that you would see mm. with the mohawk and stuff that was that was a part of my personality that i just cranked the volume up on when i was fighting right. and i enjoyed occupying that space it fed my ego in a lot of ways it was very rewarding in a lot of ways is it ego or do you miss the self-discipline and the weight cutting the only reason I ask is because I'm sort of saying like, if, just if, completely theoretically, if someone was to be like, Dan, like we want you, we want you to come out of retirement, <laughs> what would what would motivate you? you? You said the same to me, but what would motivate, would you be like, you know, someone wrote you a big check or would you say, it's just got to feel right. It needs to just feel like the right journey. You know, if somebody said, I, I, I don't know, if somebody said, okay, there's UFC Japan and you're like, okay, I have an affinity towards Japan, you know, and then all of a mm -hmm. sudden you, you kind of go, mm, you know, that feels quite nice. Yeah. Is it that or is it just not necessarily to say, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, but a prize fighter just going, you know, Dan, there's a big check and you go, oh, that's good. Which one would you, would you feel it needs to be the right journey? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It, it's never been money for me. I've only just started making money at this sport. I'll be honest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I made more money off the McGregor Mayweather fight than I did fighting GSP. <laughs> wow, really? For, for real, wow. for real. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's... I was never in it for the money. I never negotiated a contract with the UFC. I never argued for more money. Mm. It just wasn't a part of my, my journey. I'm not, I wasn't there for that. I wasn't interested in that. Yeah. Um, it, I would, I've just been fortunate that it, you know, it, I, I think part, a part of the reason why I've, why I found myself in the, in the commentary role is because I was easy to work with when I was a fighter. And because whenever they called me and said, Hey, can you talk to this person? you know, MMA in my mum's basement or whatever, the one that nobody else wants to talk to. I'm like, yeah, yeah, put him on the phone. Oh. So like that that ability to to reach out to me and, and and use me whenever they needed, I think has led me to yeah. to the position I'm at. So I, I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I don't look at the money McGregor's made and think, oh, you know, I'd, I'd like to have made a bit of that. I mean, of course it would have been nice, but I'm I'm more about the journey than the destination. I'm not trying to reach something. I'm I'm... Um, and this is something that's come since martial arts. Like I was saying, when when I was in that top percentile, I was chasing something. Mm. I wanted that thing that they got, and I wanted to be standing above them all so I could look down on everybody. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Now it's much more of an appreciation of the journey, and I'm always I'm always saying that to young fighters when they're coming off a first loss or something like that. It's it's the journey. Yeah. You know, and the best thing about being a part of the UFC is that the journey's in the limelight. So the wins and losses are documented and experienced mm. by a lot of people. Whereas when you're on the smaller shows and you're coming up and you're picking up losses, they just look like losses on your record. You know, so the process of, of winning and losing Jimmy Warlet came into the UFC and had two fights and he and he, they didn't work out. But after both of them I said to him, Look, it's, it's a part of your journey. Like people are that people now are aware of you and they can follow your journey. And that journey may not end as a fighter. It may end as a great coach, which is what it will, mm -hmm. I'm sure, because he is a fantastic coach. 
So that is his process. His process was to go through the filtration of mixed martial arts, to go through the highs and lows and all those experiences, to find his home as a coach. Mm. And I now look back at my career and go, well, that was my filtration process to prepare me to be an analyst and to be able to sit in front of a microphone and communicate what I'm seeing in mixed martial arts. Yeah. You know, I, we, we, we were just out in uh, Copenhagen for Cage Warriors and I've never met, aside from probably Poland, Poland's a very, very educated crowd, but the Danes completely took me by surprise. Like they weren't there for a particular fighter and they were just quiet until that guy came out. They were there for the sport. They loved fighting. Wow. They knew the position changes on the ground. They were reactive to things that you had, te- had to have technical knowledge to know. And then everybody that came up to me, that you know, the, like shaking my hand and stuff and grabbing selfies or whatever, every single one of them, instead of going, how did you get out the, the armbar against GSP or, oh, you, you, you know, knock out against Dwayne Ludwig is my favorite or whatever, it was inside the octagon's awesome. We love watching wow. inside the octagon because we've learned a lot from it. And for now for me, that is so much more rewarding than it would have been to have a UFC belt on my wall. Wow, yeah. So much more rewarding. I yeah. just had to go through that process and those disappointments and those, you know, those motivating factors that continued spurring me on yeah. to get to this point now where I'm like, I've, I've found my place now. And, and that's one thing on the tour, um, with the World's Fittest Tour that I'm doing right now, that I encourage everyone to find their ikigai, which you, which you know, Japanese uh, talk about your ikigai is essentially something that you enjoy, you're good at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for. And it seems very much like you've found you've refined it but now and certainly when we were chatting you know off air about some of the projects you got coming up i'm like that's amazing <laughs> you know and that is that is that is your ikigai would you would you feel that that's that's fair to say now that after yeah. what has been a long and and you know amazing career now you're kind of like yeah i found it yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely wow. and and i and i feel like I feel like I'm fortunate that I kind of found it accidentally by just being hard-headed and saying I'm I'm walking in this direction no matter what. Yeah. And I've I've kind of stumbled upon it accidentally. I I I found my vibration. And there are so many other people that I look at that have not had those opportunities or created those opportunities yeah. and they've not found that vibration and they're not in a great place. Yeah. But I wasn't there's no process that when I was a kid of being taught how to find your your icky, I always say it wrong, icky guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's, there's no process to that. If, if there was someone that could relay that, and I think sometimes you get that from martial arts and other sports, yeah. other coaches. But but I find as well, you say accidentally, but I also think when, again, when I love kind of taking inspiration from all different industries. Steve Jobs talked about it. It talked about perseverance. He gave a great talk on it. And he said, it makes no sense what he did. Mm. You know, he revolutionized multiple industries, you know, but it made no sense. You know, when he created Apple, there, there wasn't a need, there wasn't a product out there. And the hours that he worked, it make, you know, his autobiography is incredible. It made no sense. And I think it's the same with you. I think, you know, for certainly for myself, and a lot of people probably, you know, looking at you saying like, how did you get from here to here? It doesn't make any sense. As If you gave a careers talk, it would make no sense. Like, that's yeah. not how you do it. But I find it is exactly the same that now, you know, giving talks on, on mental resilience and everything that I do now, when people say, how did you, how did you end up here? I'm like, it makes no sense. You know, it just, you have to be able, and I always talk about with, you know, the great British swimmers, the most sort of, uh, 
sort of recent example, but when I left Margate, it was a very, and that's why, you know, and I meant what I said at the start of this podcast that you don't understand how much it meant when you messaged me on the South Coast, because when I left Margate, I mean, the mayor of Margate, she's lovely, you know, she came out, but there was, there was like, you know, a few people <laughs> from Margate who were incredible. There was not really any characters. You know, we spoke, she said some lovely things and, and then it was, she just was like, you know, your best, your best crack on then. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, like, all right, cheers. It wasn't like the end. So a lot of people at the end saw that swimming with the 400 swimmers and it was amazing. I still get goosebumps when I, when I look at it. It was incredible. But to start, you have to start something like that, like you did in MMA, when MMA wasn't a thing, you have to almost start void of logic. Mm. And I think one of the things that would be the nicest thing for everybody listening, it's one of the things that I've certainly taken away from this is, you know, when you're starting something, whether it's your ikigai, your passion, whatever it is, if it's just got that deeper understanding, like the shigendu, the yamabushi warrior monks, like I said, that deeper, is it spiritual? Is it science? Is it self-improvement? It doesn't matter. It's that inexplicable reason. And you've got to be prepared to get there. You have to ask yourself, what am I prepared do, what, what am I prepared to pay to get there? Ranal fines. Is it your fingers? You know, with you, you're just going, is it my consciousness temporarily? Mm -hmm. You know, and you're going, yes, I'm prepared to pay that. Then you're like a ninja. And I think that's, that's one of the, been the nicest things about, you know, finally meeting you that it, it just feels like regardless of your background or your sport or your ikigai, it doesn't necessarily matter there's always, you know, success leaves clues. Mm. And there's always that that blueprint I find. We've almost uncovered accidentally on, on, on a lot of coffee on this <laughs> podcast, I feel. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I'm sure something that you experienced as well during the swim, as you were talking about, as you left Margate. And, you know, it was a very, it was a small rumbling around the undertaking that you were you were starting. And then by the time you came around, you had a, you know, a, a fleet of swimmers with you. Like, and, and I'm sure this was echoed in your social media as well. You gathered expectations as you did that swim. Yeah. As you went around the UK, all of a sudden there's a there's a, a gathering army of people behind you. Yeah. And what you what I've found is that if I'm if I'm brave enough and willing enough to just walk my path, and you'll you'll end up being a spearhead. Mm. You, you'll end up you know creating a path for other people to walk. Yeah. And and I'm sure that you know what you did on that swim inspired so many of those people. And, and will continue to be inspired and their lives will have changed since then. I mean, I was massively inspired by it. Bought your book immediately and I will be coming to the Nottingham show for sure. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's fascinating. And this will be the first of, of many recordings that we have definitely because... Uh, these are gold. These are absolute great podcasts. Yeah, Dude, thank you very much for coming oh, over. Mate, thank you so much. Awesome, thank you, man. Mate. Well, let's wrap this one and let's, uh, let's start thinking about the next one. Right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. It's been the Full Reptile Radio. Ross Edgley. Give him a follow on, on everything. It can do something no other kind of lizard can do. It can run continuously for a very long time. And that enables it to become an endurance hunter, chasing down its prey.